Hello and welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here and we're so glad that you're here. We use our mojo to really become greater leaders. Now, let's get started by listening to something good. Oh, I feel good. I knew that. ever get frustrated with not knowing what you don't know? I know I did whenever I was trying to learn how to be a great leader and a great manager. And it is a common problem. We all search for answers but don't know where to go. And you might try to Google it, but you know, there's so many opinions. You don't know whether or not anybody really knows what they're talking about. Well, because I know that's a problem, I wanted to place that leaders could go to learn from other great leaders. They could learn the techniques on how to motivate, coach their teams, and how they themselves could be productive and have a great career. And I created this at mojouniversity.com. So I want you to go to mojouniversity.com, sign up, Uh, All of the details are right there on the page, and I know that you're going to love it. I want to hear your thoughts after you do the trial and and check it out. So please feel free to email me, Steve, at ManagerMojo.com. We are committed to your success. That's MojoUniversity.com. Hello and welcome everyone to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here and I am thrilled to introduce my special guest today, Mr. Michael Mankins. Now Michael uh, is a partner in Bain & Company's San Francisco office. He's the leader in the firm's organization practice. Now he's also the co-author of a brand new book called Time, Talent, Energy. And uh, we're going to be talking about time, talent, energy today, and can't wait to hear his perspective. But a little more background about Michael. He spent over 25 years uh, working with companies in a consulting uh, uh, advantage. Uh, He's also uh, worked with a variety of different businesses. His writings and ideas have appeared in Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and other publications. In addition to that, if it wasn't enough to write one book, he's actually co-author of two others, a graduate of the University of Kentucky and Wharton uh, School, uh, got his MBA there. Michael, welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, I'm really excited to talk with you about your book today. Uh, But before we do that, why don't you share with our listeners what fun thing that you've been up to lately outside of work? Well, I've uh, become sort of obsessed with physical fitness, and that actually ties into the topic today. So uh, I thought a lot about what it is that enables people to bring more energy to work every day, thinking that that's a fixed pool. And um, the only way that I've found that you can expand it is by having literally more energy, physical energy, uh, at your disposal. And so I've been investing a lot of time in physical fitness. Well, as, wonderful. As, uh, 
strange as that sounds. Yeah. No, it, it's not strange at all. As a matter of fact, I think every single person uh, on the planet could use a little more physical energy, uh, and especially my audience, because we're all in business and leaders, and most of us are uh, running around and getting very little exercise, and uh, our energy is one of those things that we're always constantly trying to figure out. So, yeah. very cool. Well, let, let's jump off into time, talent, and energy, uh, how we can overcome organizational drag and unleash your team's productive power. Love the title. And uh, I, I just, uh, if you would, why don't you just give us a, an overview first, and then we'll jump off into some specific questions. Sure. So, the book was spawned by just the notion that uh, – most of us, I'm in, I'm 54, so I joined the wonderful world of work back in 1987, and um, I was taught that the key to competitive advantage and business success was the careful allocation of financial capital. Um, so back when I started in work, um, GE, Berkshire Hathaway, companies like that were lauded uh, for the discipline with which they, uh, brought to, uh, investment, uh, of, uh, financial resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, what our internal teams discovered is that really capital today is super abundant, uh, and extremely cheap. Uh, and, um, the availability of capital is likely to continue to expand for most of the next 20 to 30 years due primarily to, uh, demographic factors as those, People, those of us age and uh, move beyond our peak spending years into sort of peak savings years, uh, making ma- much uh, more capital available. So that by uh, 2025, um, the Bain Macro Trends Group um, estimated that financial capital globally will sit at well in excess of a quadrillion dollars. Um, and uh, that's versus just $220 million back in 1990. Wow. But the big relationship that's important is that that's 10 times global GDP when back in 1990, the $200 trillion, $220 trillion only represented six and a half times uh, global GDP. Mm. So it was hard for us to imagine that the skillful allocation of a superabundant resource that was largely free uh, was going to be the key to competitive success in the, in the years ahead. So it begs the question, what is it that's scarce in most companies? And uh, that's where we landed on uh, it's the time, talent, energy uh, of an organization's workforce and um, the great ideas uh, that those people um, uh, develop and execute every day. Um, We can all recognize that a great idea, a single great idea can keep a company on top for many years. Yep. Whether that's the iPhone, the iPhone, the reinvention of retail by IKEA, et cetera. Um, So the real shortage is good ideas. Uh, And uh, they are the result of uh, folks that can, you know, that have the time to work together uh, effectively, that have the talent and skills required to uh, solve uh, tough business problems and bring new ideas to the forefront. And finally, the energy, the discretionary energy that they're willing to invest in the work that they do uh, in order to produce uh, creative solutions and ingenious uh, ways of delivering for the customer and other shareholders. 
So it's those scarce resources, time, talent, energy, uh, that gives rise to the book, the research, and, of course, the title. Well, I um, I really uh, look forward to this. This is fun. I, I, I uh, really am looking forward to this because from my perspective, uh, I have thought uh, for a number of years now that the, the shift from really uh, financial expertise had changed to the people side. Uh, and to me, a lot of it occurred uh, primarily because of the globalization of a lot of businesses. But... Uh, Regardless of what my opinion was, let's talk about this first one, uh, time, talent, and energy. Let's talk about time uh, because uh, your research has uncovered some, some fascinating tips about time management. So tell us uh, what you discovered about the best managers of time and really what are they doing that is so much better than, than those of us that are struggling with trying to figure out how to get stuff done? Well, I mean, we started with this uh, observation that comes from a quote from Andy Grove, who was the late um, CEO of um, Intel, mm-hmm. who basically said that you would never think of allowing some an employee to walk off with a piece of office equipment, uh, but you don't think twice about letting them steal uh, the time of his or her fellow employees and managers. So true. Um, and and uh, we knew that um, time goes largely unmanaged in companies, uh, is inherently scarce, right? No, no amount of money can buy a 25-hour day. Right. Uh, and um, uh, basically is squandered, uh, most often unintentionally, squandered in the form of the way that we all feel it at work is uh, – all these meetings uh, that we either should ne- should never have happened, we should never have been invited to, or we should never have been invited to the entire meeting, uh, or emails uh, that should never have been sent, uh, or should never have been sent to us, or we should never have responded to. And the statistics are a bit eye-popping. Uh, they, our research suggests that the average frontline supervisor spent about 23 hours a week in meetings involving more than four people. So that's, you know, that's <laughs> All two right, days. Re- two Michael, days. Michael, repeat that number because I think people are going to think that, oh, my God, no, it's not that. I didn't hear that right. Yeah, it's 23 hours a week okay, two, in meetings three. that involve more than four, uh, four people. And, um, the, uh, and oh. they spend another... Uh, eight hours a week in answering emails or essentially processing e-communication, whether that's email, IM, uh, Slack, or some form of crowdsourcing. Uh, and what that means is that um, there's actually really little time left to do work. Uh, in fact, uh, when we broke out um, time periods of less than 20 minutes, so there's a, a, a large number of research studies have been done, all of which come to a similar conclusion. That is, it's very difficult to do work in less than 20-minute increments. True. Right? You have to step into the task, you process, you step out of the task. Well, if you subtract all of the less than 20-minute uh, uh, increments, the average frontline supervisor today has less than six and a half hours a week of uninterrupted time to actually do work. 
Uh, Yay! They've got a whole six and a half hours. (laughs) Yeah, so is it any wonder that most of us find ourselves playing catch-up after hours or on weekends? Of course not, because the number of meetings keeps growing. The number of email communications keeps growing at about 7 or 8% a year uh, since we started collecting statistics. And that's basically making it very difficult to do work. Now, those are eye-popping statistics, but you have to realize that meetings and emails don't just happen, right? Uh, right? They're, the, uh, they're a byproduct of a company's organization. Uh, mm-hmm. They're essentially, uh, the, they reflect employees and managers' attempts to get work done uh, within the confines of the structure in which they operate, the uh, uh, processes in which they have to get work done, as well as the cultural norms right. uh, of the company. So the ones that do, to, get, to answer your direct question, Steve, <laughs> the ones that really, really manage time well start with the um, root cause. Why is it that we have what we characterize in the book as un- unhealthy collaboration, unproductive and unhealthy collaboration? It's typically the result of managing two things extremely well. One is organizational complexity, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that could be structural complexity. That is, let's not add any positions that we don't need to add, or let's not add another person into the decision-making process that neither can improve the decision, doesn't have to live by the decision, may not be impacted by it. So uh, the slimmer you can make uh, the organization structurally um, the better off a company is. But there's also processes. We relate the story in the book that uh, of Netflix, right? So Netflix, unlike many companies, uh, if you ask what what is the expense policy at Netflix, um, the answer will be, well, there isn't an expense policy at Netflix. Employees are told to act in Netflix best interest, those five words, literally those five words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what that means is they don't have a, an army of people um, checking expense reports. They don't have countless hours being required in order to fill out expense reports. They don't have countless hours of meetings discussing what our expense policy should be. Um, all of that is essentially streamlined. Now, that's an extreme example. But if you think about the same thing can be applied uh, to meetings, uh, the discipline I always tell folks to bring to meetings is this. Um, if you, so I have clients, uh, uh, and I think many of your listeners will be able to relate to this, that say that their most productive meetings occur at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. Uh, and that's because they're not a minute longer than they need to be. Uh, because nobody wants to have a meeting at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. They've got better things to do. It doesn't involve any people in that meeting that don't need to be involved in it, because after all, it's considered to be rude to to force somebody to have a meeting on their calendar at 7 o'clock on Saturday. So if we behaved as though all meetings were occurring at 7 o'clock on Saturday Mm -hmm. as leaders, we would have fewer of them, they would be shorter, and they wouldn't involve nearly as many people as uh, are currently involved in meetings. 
And uh, what we've seen in our research and client experience is this phenomenon, uh, which is the second major waster of time, which is a culture of collaboration for collaboration's sake. Oh, my. Uh, yeah. And what I mean by that, we can, you all know you're in an organization that's like that if meetings somehow become a status symbol, mm-hmm. right? If the more meetings you're invited to, the more important you're perceived to be. Or alternatively, sometimes in the same organizations, you have this culture that says, we're not going to, you know, I attend a meeting, my subordinates may not be able to or may not be needed. I'm, and you know, I'm expected to communicate what happened in that meeting uh, to subordinates that were unable or just simply didn't need to attend. That used to be a common practice in the 80s, um, actually. That's what you right. expected leaders right. to do. Uh, today, most leaders will say, that's too much of a hassle. Just invite them to the meeting. Yep, they do. And um, they, it's, what a waste of time. Exactly. And it creates a vicious circle because now your subordinates think they're so used to not getting information unless they're there, they're worried that unless they attend, they will be out of the loop. Uh, And so it becomes this downward spiral where um, what started out as a practice of inclusion turns into just hours and hours of um, unnecessary attendance Right. Um, at meetings and hours of organizational time being wasted. So it's those two factors. They have simple organizations, are the, the companies that are best, and they communicate clearly the expectation that uh, every meeting should be, or every interaction should be treated as though it's occurring at um, 7 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday um, that differentiates the best from the rest. And as you know, in our research, um, the tip, the rest, basically lose about a quarter of their productive capacity to what we call organizational drag, where the best lose less than half of that. Yeah, it's um, uh, so. and and I would also add one other th- thing that that I've noted in with these meetings, it's amazing how many people are sitting in a meeting that have no authority one way or another to make a decision or to contribute to the outcome. And so everybody's just sitting there because they were asked to come sit in a meeting. That makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, it actually doesn't. And our statistics are pretty compelling on this. It basically says that the growth and time dedicated to meetings isn't because more meetings are being scheduled, although some are. It isn't that meetings are getting longer. It's, it's because more people are attending. Yeah, uh, the meetings that are taking place. And as we all know, uh, the calendaring programs, whether that's Microsoft Outlook or some other uh, calendar program, has basically made it extremely simple to both set up a meeting and to invite, invite um, uh, a cast of characters to attend because the cost of adding the incremental person is essentially zero. Very cool. Well, uh, great research, and it, it clearly shows uh, in in <laughs> that we've got a lot of opportunity to improve. Uh, fewer meetings, shorter meetings, more effective, fewer people in it would be, uh, I think, every manager's dream. Uh, however, uh, you also point out in your book that it's not just about time. It's about this thing called talent. And uh, you talk about uh, the A players in a company and 
Uh, tell us a, a little bit about what you found out about talent and how that contributes towards success. Sure. Um, we started when we started the research. We thought, uh, oh, this is going to be easy. It's just the best performing companies just have better people. That's it. That's easy. Uh, and um, they just have more star players as a percentage of their workforce uh, than everybody else. It actually turns out not to be true um, that uh, most companies, um, I'm, I'm comparing averages. So when we think, when we talk about the best uh, today on this interview, as well as in the book, um, I'm talking about the top quartile in the sample of 300 companies that mm -hmm. we studied. And the rest is the average of the remaining three quartiles. Um, well, the best and the rest have roughly the same mix of star talent. About one in seven employees is a star. Um, six out of the seven aren't. So it's actually not the mix of talent that differentiates the productivity of the best from the rest. It's actually the way they deploy that talent, the way they team it, and the way they let it that our research finds um, stark differences. And I'll go I'll elaborate a little bit. On deployments, uh, we found uh, a stark contrast between the best and the rest. I'll start with the rest. Um, the rest uh, use a model that we describe as unintentional egalitarianism uh, in the way they deploy talent. And what I mean by that is it's not conscious, but what they really do is they spread their star talent across all roles in the company. So uh, roughly one in seven uh, employees in every role is a star. Okay. Uh, six and seven are not. The rest by, are the best, by contrast, uh, follow a model that we describe as being intentional non-egalitarianism. Uh, and uh, what I mean by that is they select a handful of roles um, that are actually business critical. And what I mean by that is that you cannot successfully beat your competition strategically or, or outperform them unless um, these critical roles are done right. Uh, think about merchandising and retail uh, as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, what we found was the best actually concentrate their star talent there so that 95 to 100 percent of the people in business critical roles and the select business critical roles are stars. Uh, and what that means is that they have fewer stars in non-business critical roles. Uh, but it's this conscious, uh, intentional non-egalitarianism that allows them to have uh, more difference makers in the place where they can make the biggest difference. Uh, you can tell that's a line from the book. Um, and uh, that produces great performance. The second piece, though, is really big, is teaming. So um, we start with the observation that uh, all-star teams um, actually uh, dramatically outperform uh, balanced teams. So what I mean by all-star teams mm. are those comprised entirely of star players. That's a great point. Uh, and the, the example I use in the book is Kyle Busch's uh, pit crew in NASCAR. So 
for those of you who are listening, no, I do not actually watch NASCAR. But I was intrigued by the fact that Kyle Busch back in 2012 and 13 had what was considered the best pit crew in all of NASCAR. And what uh, that means is that a pit crew is comprised of uh, seven people, including the pit captain, uh, and they perform uh, 78 separate maneuvers in a standard pit. So a car comes in, they change all the tires, they fill it with gas, they change the oil, all that sort of stuff. All 78 maneuvers. Kyle Busch's um, pit crew can perform the standard pit in 12.12 seconds. It's really remarkable. A car comes in 12.12 seconds later, it leaves with an entirely new tank of gas, all kinds of new stuff. If you take one of Kyle's pit crew members out and you substitute an average pit crew member in, that time jumps to 24 seconds. You take uh, two out and you substitute two average players in, it jumps to 48. Wow. Your listeners are probably figuring out the math. It's a ge- geometric relationship mm-hmm. that it goes 12, 24, 48 uh, my expectation is it probably goes to 96 seconds is, uh, if you took well, three I'm, think, I'm thinking and somebody's going to get fired before that happens. Well, all I'm saying <laughs> is that what it says is the higher the percentage of star players, the vastly more productive the team is. That's and um, yet uh, companies in our sample, the best were four times more likely than the rest to create what we call uh, all-star teams and assign them against mission-critical initiatives than the rest. Uh, the contrast is also true, which I think the listeners would relate to, which is that the rest were seven times more likely to uh, assemble teams based on who's available. Right, right. Versus the best. So it's um, that aspect of actually creating teams against mission-critical initiatives that also is a big driver uh, of the difference in performance between the best and the rest. And as you uh, may remember from the book, the biggest difference overall between the best and the rest is actually in the area of talent. Um, The rest actually don't get much benefit in productivity from the way they uh, deploy team and lead talent, where the rest actually get a big increase in productive power as a result of the way they manage that scarce resource. Very interesting research for sure. And, and that, that's a great segue into uh, the productive or engaged employees. And uh, we look at energy to, uh, to really talk about that. And I know that you found uh, some fascinating information about how productive, satisfied workers were versus those that were inspired. Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, sure. So we we uh, found um, that engaged employees are about um, 45% more productive than satisfied employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's probably intuitive to folks in the audience. The stunner to us was that inspired employees, that those are people who are inspired by their team, their leader, or the purpose of the company with which they work, uh, for which they work, um, are 125% more now, productive than yeah. satisfied employees. Now we're talking. And what that means, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd have to hire 
2.25 uh, satisfied employees to produce as much uh, output as one inspired employee. So not surprisingly, then, it's the mix of inspired employees that has a big impact on the company's productive power. And um, the other uh, fact that uh, you may have spotted in the book is that we actually found that the mix of unsatisfied and engaged employees is roughly the same between the best and the rest. That is, 7% of most companies' workforce are unsatisfied. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're a great performing company or a not great performing company. About 7% of the workforce is unsatisfied. Yeah. And uh, because of the success of Gallup and other organizations and stressing the importance of engagement, the mix of engaged employees is about the same between the best and the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the best have two times uh, the percentage mix of inspired employees as the rest. So it all comes out of sort of satisfied employees. So there's lo- less satisfied employees, more engaged and vastly uh, more two times the percentage of uh, inspired employees. And so it's those companies that invest behind building inspiring leaders and building a culture of accountability and inspiration and autonomy that unleash the most discretionary energy in their workforce. And as a result, uh, even with the same uh, management of time and talent, can still produce uh, vastly more uh, productive output uh, than the rest. So it's a combination of great time management, great talent management, and great uh, management of discretionary energy that produces this overwhelming uh, advantage that the best has over the rest. Michael, this is uh, really, uh, I think, groundbreaking research, and I think it's something that all of us need to really pay attention to. And I know our listeners are going to want to know how to better connect with you. How how would you uh, like for them to uh, research more about you and your great work? Sure. There's two things that folks can do. First, uh, they can go to time, talent, energy, all one word, .com and uh, learn more about the research and in the book itself. It also provides uh, uh, anyone who accesses the website the ability to do uh, take an own, their own diagnostic on the organization they may work with and compare it to the benchmarks that we've compiled in the book to know essentially how, just how good are they and how, how, how much better could they be at managing time, talent, and energy. And then uh, always go to Bain.com uh, to learn more about uh, what the organization practice has done and uh, sort of the groundbreaking research that's most recently come out. And obviously follow me if you can on, at uh, hbr.org. Uh, where uh, I write a regular blog. Awesome. Uh, Well, we're going to make sure, for those of you that are listening now and you're exercising, we'll make sure to put links uh, in this particular post to make it easy for you to connect to Michael. Uh, Michael, as we kind of come to a close today, I always like to ask my guests, what would be the top two or three action items that, that you would recommend that leaders take uh, after listening today? Uh, the first thing I, I would ask people to do is how good have they been at uh, deploying the talent of their, of their teams? 
because I'm a strong believer that it's uh, the way the scarce resource of talent is managed that is the biggest differentiator between the best and the rest. So ask yourself Monday morning, um, what percentage, what are the business critical roles in, in my organization and how um, many of the people that are in those business uh, critical roles are actually star players? Uh, and if it's not, you know, in excess of 75%, ask yourself why and what you can do about it. Um, if you're not a leader of uh, that seniority, you can still ask yourself, how am I uh, creating teams uh, in my function for those uh, initiatives that are most critical to the success of my function, my business, or the company overall? And again, if there isn't a significant percentage of uh, A players in those, ask yourself why that is. I mean, if you uh, consciously decided to do something different or not. And if you can correct it, I would strongly uh, advise to correct it. And the last thing I would suggest that people do is uh, look at their own personal calendar. I'm not going to ask you to manage your calendar more effectively because I personally don't think individuals can do that. I think it's mostly an organizational issue. But ask yourself in your last week all of the, how much of your time was consumed in meetings that involved more than four people. How much time do you think you spent on e-communications and create estimates for how many of the meetings that you attended should never have occurred, should never have been, you should never have been invited to, or you should never have attended the entire meeting? Or, uh, and alternatively, how many times you hit reply all uh, when you could just hit reply? Uh, because our research uh, suggests that reply all, the single factor of supply reply all may cost uh, 3% of a company's productive capacity, uh, believe it or not. Yeah, I, so, believe uh, I believe it. What a waste. It always drives me nuts when we get those reply alls. And those are all minor things that um, all of us can do um, starting next week to make ourselves more productive, but also start to get the organization to think about how it can get out of the way and allow the workforce to uh, achieve the kind of results that it wants to and can uh, if it weren't for the fact that uh, uh, the organization has gotten its way. Awesome. Michael, those are great action items, and I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom today and all this great research. Our guest today has been Michael Mankins. He's the co-author of Time, Talent, Energy, Overcome Organizational Drag and Unleash Your Team's Productive Power. Michael, uh, we really appreciate uh, your insight today, and we wish you continuing success in the book and can't wait to find out more about your research. Thanks, Dave.